welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Yesterday, the U.S. Senate took the most concrete steps so far to roll back rules adopted in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis by passing a bill amending the Dodd-Frank Act and providing considerable regulatory relief to smaller lenders such as regional and community banks. The names sake of the Dodd-Frank bill, former Congressman Barney Frank spoke with Bloomberg about the proposed Senate changes last Tuesday. Um, I, I think the, some of the critics from the left are being too harsh. It has one good thing. If this bill passes, that's the end of the debate over the, over the financial reform bill. In other words, yes, this bill makes changes, a couple of which I don't like, but by the very fact that it doesn't change almost everything else, it's going to confirm them. Joining us is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University Law School. Bob, what's your reaction to what Barney Frank said about this bill being the end of the debate over the financial of over financial reform? No, oh, hi, Jude. Well, thanks so much for having me on. So um, I'm going to surprise you uh, in one sense, I, I think, and say that I actually kind of agree with Barney Frank uh, on this one. That being said, I do nevertheless think it's a good idea for the senators and the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the the Dems in the Senate who object to the change to kind of keep sounding the alarm because this is not the end of it, right? We now have uh, Representative Henserling's bill over in the House uh, to be reconciled with this one, and that one is far more radical. And so I think by uh, kind of maintaining, kind of holding the line as they are in the Senate, the progressive Dems there are, I think, signaling that we won't go any further by way of retreat from Dodd-Frank. Bob, what are the core changes in the Senate bill? The core changes to Dodd-Frank? Yeah. So on on the surface, um, you you might say the optics are especially bad. On the surface, they look pretty extensive. But then when you look sort of underneath, they're not nearly as bad as one might thought or expected. Again, given given who's sort of in control, right in the in the Senate in the House. So first of all, uh, the old uh, SIPI threshold of uh, fifty uh, billion has been raised to two hundred fifty. Now, at first, that sounds quite remarkable, right? It essentially it releases about two thirds of the large banks from sort of SIPI designation. Uh, and in that sense, you know, optically that looks terrible. There would have been a much better way to do this if you wanted to sort of differentiate between the mega banks and the not so mega banks. You might have raised it to 100 or 150 or something. On the other hand, again, under the surface, things aren't quite as bad as they might look because the thing is the Fed retains the discretion to regulate the banks that are under that new city side uh, size, uh, but still above 10, uh, above 50 billion in the same way that it has. It's just that it's not required by legislation to do so. So things might very well stay the same if the Fed makes um, you know, prudent decisions about how best to regulate those sub $250 billion banks that are still over $50 billion banks. Now, Sherrod Brown, other senators, progressive senators like Elizabeth Warren have warned that these changes would harm consumers and increase risk in the financial system. Do you see that from this particular bill? Well, they certainly opened the door to that possibility. Um, at the same time, however, the possibility itself is probably a little bit remote at this point. So take two examples. Um, some of the underwriting, some of the mortgage underwriting standards for banks under $10 billion, the so-called community banks, have been uh, sort of rendered a bit less stringent than they were made after 2010. That, of course, sounds 
terrible on the surface, and again, it's potentially dangerous, but there's a condition attached um, that actually, to some extent, or to a significant uh, extent, mitigates the risk, and that is that that particular relief is only afforded to the smaller banks if they're not selling on, you know, selling their mortgages off to securitizers or to GSEs, right? In other words, um, they enjoy that particular relief only if they are not, in effect, communicating their possibly riskier mortgages to the wider financial system. Now, of course, it could still imperil those banks, but because they're smaller when they're under $10 billion, things look a little bit less dangerous than you might initially have thought. So that's not to say that I endorse the change. I'm just, I'm just saying that it's not quite as awful as one might have thought or expected. Sort of similarly with the Volcker Rule, right, that the under $10 billion, the so-called community banks, uh, are getting relief from the so-called Volcker Rule. And on the surface, that doesn't look very good either, right? Uh, on the other hand, uh, the backstory here is that the smaller community banks don't tend to do a lot of trading in securities anyway. So it's not altogether clear that the Volcker Rule would have been making that much difference, whereas the so-called compliance costs to sort of documenting what you're doing to show that you're uh, in compliance with Volcker has been, uh, have been perhaps a bit higher for the lower, I mean, for the smaller banks, at least as, as a proportion of their total expenditures than they have for the larger banks. You mentioned uh, House Financial Services Committee Chairman Jeb Henserling, who mm-hmm. has said he wanted to include bigger revisions yeah. than were passed by the Senate. What is he referring to? What has he have? What does he have in mind? Um, he seems to have quite a few things in mind, and in my view, almost all of them are, are quite irresponsible and, and indeed reckless. I mean, one case in point is uh, he actually wants to give um, a, a sort of a regulatory pass to a number of very large private equity firms uh, that sort of bill themselves as so-called uh, business development companies. Um, so what they're essentially, what these firms do is they're basically private in, uh, private equity firms that pretend to be doing, and maybe sometimes actually are doing, um, uh, sort venture capital type raising for small businesses, and then they say, oh, you know, we're helping out the job creators and so forth. Um, but it's, it's very easy to sort of say that you're doing that and nevertheless uh, engage in very risky lending practices or risky investment practices. Uh, and so it makes sense that firms like this would be you know, overseen uh, by the regulators. And the idea of just sort of letting them free, you know, sort of cutting them loose of all regulations, simply onto the pretext that they are so-called, you know, uh, job creator business development companies, I think is, is, is just, again, highly highly risky, I mean, highly reckless. Um, a lot of other things that Henserling wants to do as well, I think um, as, as, at last last I checked, he wants to remove even the Fed discretion uh, to regulate the, the under $250 billion but above $50 billion banks as CIFIs, um, wants to sort of cut back, in other words, on the regulator's capacity to uh, apply uh, enhanced prudential regulations to banks Bob, when they are expressly to- told to do so. We'll have to stop there and wait until he actually proposes these things and talk again. Thanks, as always. That's Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell University Law School. Is the world's most popular weed killer toxic? More than 700 farmers, landscapers, and gardeners are suing Monsanto, claiming that exposure to the glyphosate in Roundup gave them cancer. In a pretrial hearing, the San Francisco judge overseeing all 300 of the federal cases against Monsanto said that the opinions of the experts testifying against Monsanto are, quote, shaky, a potentially devastating development for the cases getting to trial. Joining me is Jean Egan, a professor at Widener University Delaware Law School. Jean, first explain the basis of the lawsuits against Monsanto. What are they about? 
Well, essentially, they're toxic tort lawsuits. They're uh, brought by various farmers, landscapers, gardeners against the company claiming that they developed cancer as a result of being exposed to Roundup during a relatively long period of time. Federal Judge Vince Chabria heard about from about a dozen witnesses, including epidemiologists, toxicologists, statisticians, and an oncologist, to decide who should be allowed to testify as experts before a jury. What was he looking for to make this determination? Well, essentially, this kind of hearing is twofold. Um, The first part that has to be decided first is whether the expert evidence of causation of one or both parties uh, is admissible at trial under the rules of evidence. And because the plaintiffs have the burden of proof, their uh, evidence is going to be the most key in uh, this initial stage. Uh, Second, after determining that, the court will look at what the judge has deemed to be admissible evidence and determine whether there's a genuine issue of material fact that needs to go to the fact finder. Uh, If, on the other hand, uh, no reasonable jury could find for the plaintiff, then the action will be dismissed. So the key to admissibility is essentially a two-part test, which is that the scientific evidence that forms the basis for the expert's testimony must be both reliable and relevant. Uh, Reliability essentially means that it's scientifically sound, uh, based on a reliable technique such as epidemiology, which this is. But um, there can be other problems that are associated with reliability, such as what the Supreme Court has called an analytical gap between what the studies actually show and what the expert testifying for the party is concluding about it. And this seems to be uh, one of the things that the judge is particularly concerned about with regard to the plaintiff's evidence. In fact, as you suggested, he's telegraphed through his comments that he's skeptical of the plaintiff's expert evidence. But uh, I think he stopped short of saying that it is not admissible, at least at this juncture, without knowing or uh, looking into the evidence a little bit more closely, um, because he has suggested that uh, he has correctly, I uh, correctly stated that it is not up to him to weigh this evidence to decide whether Roundup can cause cancer. It is rather up to him to decide what is reliable enough to get to the jury. So the toxicity of this herbicide has been debated by scientists worldwide for more than 30 years. What came out during this hearing to lead the judge to say that the evidence that glyphosate is currently causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in human beings is pretty sparse. Well, I think the first thing is that the defendants are, that Monsanto is relying on a relatively newly published study, very newly published study about uh, agricultural workers that looked at 54,000 agricultural workers and stated or concluded that Roundup does not, or glyphosate does not cause cancer. Uh, So I think there's the weight of that, but again, the court is not supposed to look at the weight of it. Um, He the judge, I think, was particularly concerned with the failure of the plaintiff's attorney to, or the plaintiff's expert, to actually account for confounding factors in the studies that the plaintiffs were relying on. And these confounding factors were things like multiple pesticide exposures uh, among the people who were tested. So I think that this this is really 
the, the first very close and comprehensive look at what we know about glyphosate. And I have to say, it's really startling to me that after 30 years, <laughs> we really know relatively little. And even the judge said, we don't know whether it causes cancer. Well, let me, let me just ask you this, because our reporter who has been covering the trial said the judge gave a strong indication that Beat Ritz, a public health professor at UCLA, may be the only witness he allows to testify for the plaintiffs, and that even she's at risk of being eliminated. Wouldn't that basically destroy the plaintiffs' cases if they didn't have expert witnesses? Absolutely, yes. And it probably would destroy the case on a summary judgment motion to dismiss um, before trial. Uh, if, it, if your evidence can't get in, if you're a plaintiff, your evidence can't get in, then uh, Monsanto wins dismissal, which would have an enormous impact on this litigation. This is um, multi-district litigation, which, um, is, which means that uh, all such cases in the federal courts against Monsanto for exposure to glyphosate have been transferred to this particular judge in the Northern District of California. So uh, if the judge determines the plaintiff's evidence can't get in, uh, the result would apply to all cases, and there's upwards of 370 cases here. Yeah. Let's talk about the judge's influence, not only on these multi-district cases, but thousands of other state court cases against Monsanto across the country. He was joined by a judge from Oakland who's handling hundreds of state claims, and he invited other judges across the U.S. handling thousands more state court cases to make these proceedings part of their record. So, that's a lot of influence for one judge. Well, yes, and uh, that's a good point, <laughs> um, that he is trying to make his uh, hearing part of the record for all of those state proceedings around the country. But I think there are some procedural problems that are associated with that, uh, you know, in each of those uh, jurisdictions, the parties have a right to bring in their own experts and a right to bring in their own evidence and make their own arguments. And also, um, the rules of admissibility in some states are slightly different from the rules of admissibility of evidence in the federal courts. So I think there may be some problems with this, but I would applaud the judge, on the other hand, for trying to trying to uh, make known what the issues are in the case. I'm not sure that it will have any direct influence on these other cases. However, as you pointed out, it uh, is likely to have uh, an important indirect influence. Um, also, do we have about a minute here, but can you explain how these often these product liability cases get settled before trial based on a few cases? Uh, okay, well, often they have these bellwether cases that go to trial, and they tend to be cases that are each representative of sort of a different category of, of uh plaintiff in the case. And it gives the parties an opportunity to see nope. what, Jean, what will happen. We're running out of time. I didn't give you enough time for that. That was That's a, a, a really long, long question. Thank you so much, though. We learned a lot. That's Jean Egan, a professor at Widener University, Delaware Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.